Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Dallas Goldtooth. Dallas is a Dakota actor, comedian, stage performer, and public speaker from the village of Chongshan Wampi, within the territory of the Ochete Shakowing people. He has performed on FX's Reservation Dogs, Comedy Central, and the BBC. He is a film producer, a playwright, and a published poet. He is also a Dakota language activist, a cultural teacher, dedicated father, and a loving husband. He is also on the newest season of NBC's Rutherford Falls on the Peacock app. This is a fun conversation. I can't wait to jump into this. So uh, let's just jump into this conversation with Dallas Goldtooth. Dallas, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. This is really great to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and where you're from. Okay. Am I introducing myself to like natives or am I introducing myself to a bunch of white folks? I need to know these facts. <laughs> it's the aim is for indigenous youth, but. Oh, uh, okay. You know, well, if, shit. Yeah. If, but if Washichus creep in and listen, that's what they do. So. Right on. All right. No, I just can't. I, it, it's, <laughs> hey, you. Yeah, we all code switch through our lives, right? And uh, <laughs> I very much try to be mindful of my code switching. Um, my name is Dallas Goldtooth. I'm a Dakota man from the village of Chinshayapi, which is also known as the Lower Sioux Indian Community, and what is so-called Minnesota, what we call Minnesota or Dakota Makoche. And I currently live in on Anishinaabe territories uh, down in Chicago. I live here with my family, uh, my wife, who's Oglala Lakota, and we have five children here. So you can hear pots and pans maybe in the background. You hear some family stuff in the background, but I'm happy to be here. And uh, I think the last note is I work for the Indigenous Environmental Network uh, as a as an organizer. I also am an actor and a writer as well. Your advocacy is how we first crossed paths a few years ago. Um, and so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. But first, uh, let's talk about your, your biggest influences, uh, maybe growing up when you were younger. And who are your influences today? My influences. Well, I, to be honest, growing up, a lot of my influences were a whole variety of uncles, right? All the, the, um, all the amazing, beautiful, complicated, problematic, toxic uncles in my life, um, is my biggest influence because they've shown me how to, they, sh they showed me how to live. They showed me how to walk in, in a balanced way. They also showed me things I shouldn't be doing when I get older. Um, and so I, it's really broad. It's not as specific maybe as some people want, but they're, 
is very much an inspiration for me is a lot of like the Vietnam veteran uncles I grew up with, a lot of the guys from the AIM movement. Um, those are all been very influential for me. And, um, and, and I guess maybe in more specific ways, like I was influenced by my fathers. I have two fathers. I had a, a, my biological father, Tom Goldtooth, and then I had, I had a uh, stepfather, Galen Drapo Sr. And uh, Galen Drapo uh, raised me for a number of years when I was young, very young, down on the Ihanktawan territory on the Yankton Sures. So those two men really kind of guided me in my life and my growth as a man. And uh, I would say they still guide me. So that's that's the second answer to your to your question. I I often ask um, the guests uh, how they've developed their career uh, in college and post college. Uh, I feel in your case, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you have kind of two very distinct. Um, paths that that you're on or what you are known for uh can you talk about uh, both of them actually yeah um it's a great question so i am the co-creator of a sketch comedy group called the 1491s as five of us native men who created that group over 15 years ago and uh, one of the core members of that group is my brother migazi pensano i grew up migazi is my is my stepbrother we grew up together um, his mom and my dad shacked up in Southside Minneapolis and they were Indian married for a number of years, you know, Indian married, they, they never formally got married, but they're basically married. That's, that is, uh, that is what happened. So we grew up with each other and it was my brother Migazi's dream is always his dream to make movies. He always wanted to write and direct and make, just make movies to tell stories and I shared that dream with him. Like I, I would be, we'd actively create stuff together. And out of that passion, we created the 1491s with a number of other brothers to do all this comedy shows. Around that same time, I got involved with uh, an or the organization, the Indigenous Environmental Network, which my dad, Tom Goldtooth, is the executive director of. So growing up, we grew up, he, he's been in that job since 1991. So we grew up in that organization. We grew up going to all these, uh, you know, actions and protests and conferences and gatherings. And so it was kind of like, at the, I started working for them. I needed a job and I started working on fighting the Keystone XL pipeline. At the same time, I was creating comedy with the 1491s. And there isn't, there wasn't a lot of overlap there, but they it just too, they're almost like the two sides of me that spoke the loudest and I just went with it. I didn't really fight it. I didn't like, I, th I think at times I struggled with like, you know, do I focus on the activism? Do I focus on the art? What do I do? And I think I do see myself first and foremost as an artist. It may not be the type of art folks are used to, but I do see myself as an artist and as an artist, I do feel like one of the biggest aspects of our identities as artists is that we live in contradiction. Like our art is often born out of the contradictions of our lives. And I kind of hold that in what I do, right? 
of this like serious nature, like serious activism. We got to stop this project. We got to protect Mother Earth, you know, to hell with it all. Burn it all down. And then also the absurdity of our lives and using comedy as a way to to heal. I, I find those two sides of me really, they're, they're loud. <laughs> they take up a lot of space. And so I try to walk with them in a good way together, you know. Uh, I went to school at UC Berkeley. I, I, I went to school out in the West Coast. Um, I ended up transferring to the University of Minnesota to become a Dakota language teacher. And uh, I never really finished. I didn't finish college. But I, uh, those definitely politicized me. Uh, or, or part of that same journey. Out of curiosity, when were you in Berkeley? Uh, 2001 through 2005-ish. Okay. Yeah, I graduated. Okay. High, I graduated uh, high school in two thousand one. Oh, okay, okay. What about I, you? Uh, I was. Well, I graduated in ninety six. Okay, um, I was at the Academy of Arts in San Francisco in ninety nine two thousand. Oh shit! I'd spent a little time in Berkeley. Had a couple friends out there. Um, right on. Yeah, there was yeah. a dude over there at the Academy. Oh, I think his name is Jeremy. Um, he was like a Navajo artist, but he might've been there later. I think, cause I met him in like 2002 and he was over there. Oh yeah. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we moved back there in 2015, uh, when I started grad school, same school. Um, and so, uh, I, I love the Bay area. Um, if, if I have a second home, it's, it's definitely the Bay area. Oh, me too, man. Like. I haven't been there back back there in like three or four years, well before the uh, the coronavirus, mm-hmm. and it's so damn cliche going back. And I'm like, dude, there's so much development happening here. It's so congested. I yeah. love it still. I still love the Bay because I have a lot of family there, friends. But the development seems kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. So I I do see it as a as a close. I love I I've always loved the Bay. Yeah. Uh- it's like they say um if if you're there and you leave you come back it's never the same it's never the same area um yeah because i lose i used to live down <laughs> around the edge of the tenderloin uh right downtown and uh second time was in the south part of the city um but it was a completely different city it's now a tech city uh, way more than it was before yeah but my wife won't move back there because homes cost five times more than they do in Fargo. So, oh, it's, dude, it's it is ridiculous. It is pretty crazy. Um, the price is there. Yeah, yeah. So, opportunities present themselves to us um, in different ways over the years, uh, especially when we're younger and we're hustling. And then, as we start to achieve things, they come in different forms. Uh, would you be able to talk about uh, certain opportunities you've had over the years? Uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Opportunities. I got a chance to um, give Chuske Spencer, who is one of like the wolves from the Twilight series, a lap dance at the National Museum of American Indian during President Obama's second inauguration ball. That was an opportunity I could not miss up. And uh, he didn't like it. I have a photo of me, of me giving him a lap dance. And uh, he was not a fan. But I talked to his wife and she said that, you know, he's like that sometimes. So, hmm. yeah, that was an opportunity. Uh, I think that 
I have to recognize, and I think it's just great to recognize privilege, the word privilege and what it means. Like I recognize that I'm very, there's a lot of privileges I grew up with that I want to, I want to name here. Cause I think it's also helps us kind of heal ourselves as a community. I was, I was privileged to have grown up in what you would call a traditional home where, you know, my stepdad, Galen Drapo senior, uh, was a medicine man. He passed away, uh, almost two years ago now. Hmm. And, um, the, you know, as a medicine man, I grew up around ceremonies, uh, our teachings with the Chinupa and Sundance and all that stuff. Um, and also got supported. There was an amazing teacher advocate, uh, at a public school at my, on my res or for my res on public or at the public school near my res who pushed me to apply to go to a native boarding school down in New Mexico that no longer exists. And its focus was getting native kids into college. I, I applied the school's call was called native American preparatory school. And, um, there I got an opportunity to meet some recruiters for different colleges, which at that point I never thought about college and they worked with native students to get them in. And I, I applied to, you know, all these different schools, um, and I ended up decided to go into UC Berkeley. So those are it. And I went, it was funny because I went to UC Berkeley to visit as a high school senior. You know, you, you go to visit, they pay for you to go check it out and check, you know, see if you want to go there. Mm-hmm. I flew in into uh, Oakland airport. I landed the recruiter picked me up. There were some youth that some students there. They picked me up and they're like, cool. Thank you for being here. We're excited to have you here. Are you, do you want to go to Stanford Powell? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So like 90% of my time of my college visit to UC Berkeley, I was at Stanford <laughs> for their powwow and I loved it. And that's, a, that, that's what swayed me. That's what made me want to go to, to the college because what I, what I didn't know I needed or wanted was a sense of community a sense of like, I'm stepping into a place that is, has established community to which I can find a place within. And I went to all these other colleges where, you know, it was a handful of natives that did not have a greater community beyond the, beyond the college. And I, I didn't realize I needed, I needed that sense of community And the Bay area provided that, that you and I just talked about that, right? The sense of belonging there. So that's what decided me. That was an opportunity I took. Um, so there's a whole range of opportunities, but there's also privileges mixed in with that. And um, yeah. Hmm. I would I'd be remiss if I it, it didn't bring up uh, what's currently going on with uh, what you're all doing um, with uh, reservation dogs and um, Rutherford Falls. Um can can you talk a little bit about how that's sort of come about? Um, if there's a, a creative community that you're all working together, or how is how has that kind of come together? Oh yeah, man, yeah. So uh, I get this comment a lot on a lot of my social media where people are saying, "What happened to the 1491s? Where is the 1491s? What are you guys doing? You, you guys gave it up." Well, most folks don't realize that reservation dogs. It's the 1491s behind that, right? Mm-hmm. Sterling Harjo was one of the, it was one of the 1491s. The first season in the, in the, in the writer's room for season one, there was like, I think six or seven um, different native, all native writers, you know, 
three of them were Fortune 91s of the five. So that was Sterling. There's Miga Z Pensano, my stepbrother, yep. and uh, Bobby Wilson. And then on season two, it was all five of us are in the room. So me and Ryan Ridcorn joined the room. Oh, that's great. And so what you are seeing on screen, of course, we're not, I don't want to take away from all the other native writers, but what you see in Reservation Dogs is a manifestation partly of the 1491s giving our juice to the story. Um, and we, we, uh, we've always been a collaborative, collaborative crew that has always enjoyed just the power of comedy. And so I do see like a kind of an ecosystem where we all kind of help each other, but not in an exclusive way where like, no, it's just us, but like really reaching out to Indian country and, and the artistry that's out there to say, Hey, like, let's pull more folks into this. Let's all, let's all, let's make this happen. And Sterling exhibited that perfectly where he built this show. Well, start with Taika. Taika Waititi created, you know, he, him and Sterling have been close friends for years and years and years and years. Before anyone knew who Taika was, they were friends going back to the Sundance Film Festival. And as the story goes, Taika was like, hey, man, like, well, he didn't say this, but basically Taika leveraged his name because he's like, I'm really popular right now. And anything I put my name on, that someone's going to pick it up and make a show out of it. So he went to Sterling and said, hey, let's make you let's make this happen and leveraged his name so that Sterling could get to tell could tell his story and make this show happen. So that was like an indigenous relative reaching out, making pulling in, allowing other folks to step into their own righteousness and power. And then Sterling passed that on by reaching out to all, all native staff writers, all native crew, you know, actors and trying to find those places to say, Hey, like, we're not doing this alone. We want to bring folks with us. I'm on this other show called Rutherford Falls. That's on, it's on uh, NBC's streaming app called Peacock app. And, um, I was, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm in season two. I'm, I, I am, I play a character in season two that. I'm really excited. It's, it's actually really nervous. I was really nervous for it because it's something different outside my comfort zone, but I really wanted to do that. And uh, that's going to be pretty awesome. That's going to come out in the spring or summer. I don't know when, but sometime soon. Okay. Well, uh, my wife and I, we've we watched uh, both series and have enjoyed both of them. So what's They're, they're about- like to- totally different, right? Like they're- They are. The vibe is different. The comedy is a little different. Like the audience, I think, is different, but you can enjoy both of them in their own right. What's great about Reservation Dogs for us is that it doesn't feel like it's pandering to a native audience. Mm. You know, yeah. um, the humor, uh, I mean, it's it's like watching our relatives and mm-hmm. my my wife, who's kind of a serious person, I've not heard her laugh the way she does during uh reservation dogs uh it's it's quite a joy that's amazing yeah i i i would be remiss not to mention one individual who's been key in a lot of this work is um sierra teller ornelius um and hold on actually i got i want to make sure i get her bio i'm on my i'm on my computer here so everyone (laughs) um can hear it um so sierra uh, Ornelas, or I can't pronounce her last name, Ornelas. Um, she's Navajo and she's the co creator. Uh, she's a create, create showrunner and creator of Rutherford Falls. And folks don't know her. I want to encourage you to reach out, check out Sierra 
check out her Instagram's follower because dude, like um, she's the showrunner of Rutherford Falls. She was a, a writer on this show, show called Superstore. She's a writer on other um, other TV shows. She's like she's been putting in the work in Hollywood for years. She also worked at the uh, NMAI, the National, National Museum of American Indian, at one point to help with the museum there. And she's phenomenal. And I think she deserves so much love. And I don't think she's getting enough attention. And because it's partly because she's really, really a modest person. But I'm going to be posting about her a lot more just to get her some special recognition for all the work that she's been putting in to get to where she's are not where she's at now. Oh. She worked on, I think, um, Brooklyn Nine Nine. She she worked on uh, uh, a couple other shows. So she's got the chops. Yeah, yeah, yeah Those she are some does serious shows. Yeah. She worked on a show called Happy Endings. Um, she was a producer on a show called Splitting Up Together. Like, yeah, she's 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 uh, she has some experience. I would love to to be able to have her on the show. Um, oh, I'll um, introduce you. I'll make it oh, happen. That'd be great. <laughs> that'd be great. What would you want to say to the 18 or the 22 year old that's listening to this conversation? Uh, get vaccinated. That's that's the topmost. Get freaking vaccinated. I, I gotta, I gotta say that. Um, I was talking to some folks at Illuminative. Illuminative is a you know, major native organization that's come popped up and has been doing a lot of great work on popular education. And they did this, they did, they've been doing these studies and reports on like, you know, vaccination numbers. And, um, they've come to find that 24 and under native folk, youth, are not getting vaccinated at the numbers that are, are really necessary to protect our communities. And um, they were asking, why do you think that is? And I was like, well, one is like native youth, anyone under 35 has a really well-defined bullshit radar mm. and are very, very cynical. We've, we've, we've been, our education on cynicism is so well-defined. And so anything that's too sincere, anything that's a little too chiefy over the top, we kind of like, all right, we're not going to vibe into that. So the whole, like the whole narrative of do it for your people, protect the next seven generations of life, get vaccinated. <laughs> it doesn't really work for our folks because we can't help but laugh because it's cheesy. It works for older generation may not work for our younger folks. And so we have to come up with new ways, to encourage folks to get vaccinated and to really step up. And so I was really happy to be a part of the, some thought processes to, to do that. So that's what I would say that first and foremost, second, I think that we are in a we are at a, we are in a pivotal moment in so many different ways, right? On a global scale, fucking climate crisis. When climate change is happening, it's a pivotal moment. On a national level, 18 to 24-year-olds play a pivotal role in some of the politics games, if, if that's the, if that's your thing, right? Like you can have, there's a lot of happening right there. Within Indian country, like, I'll put it this way. I'm, put, I'm saying this in a non-PC way, but our elders, they're passing away. Like our elders, like it, it's a generation, we are losing a generation, but in many ways it's tragic because of the circumstances. You have COVID, you have um, other health issues, but it's also a part of the cycle. And 
now you have 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who are now becoming those uncles and aunties we looked up to when we were young. We we're becoming elders. So like we are in a generational shift right now where those who are 18 and 24-year-olds are charting a path that I don't think we've ever experienced within an Indian country. And I really look forward to that. And I want to encourage folks to really take advantage of that. Right. That for one key example is how we discuss queer identities, how we express, express and understand um, just gender identities in general. Right. Like compare, if we think about the, how we've talked, how we talk about identities, our, our gender identities to when I was in high school or go back to when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. Right. Or just, let's just say, let's just use dates. You go back to tw- the year 2000 to now crazy shift. Yeah. Right. When we were like, I, I I'm, you know, I know Joe, you were, you know, a, a bit older than me, but I'm sure you can find some similarities. Like in high school and middle school, there was only a handful of identities that, you could reach your hat in and say, all right, this is our identity. That was mostly jocks, nerds, jocks, nerds. And then there was, you know, queer, gay, right? Like those are like, oh, you're gay. You're, like, you're, you're seen as queer. And that was definitely a derogatory, like, like that's oh. it. You could be a jock or you could be a nerd or you could be those emos. Like the emos was the other one. Like you're anything different and dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so much more expansive now. So I think that's just a great example of the generational shift that we're seeing. I think as you talk about this, um, the, the power and confidence that the youth have today compared to say when I was their age, um, is, is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you know, we, we talk about, um, the March we did in Washington back in 2017. So many young people were there, uh, it, w- it was incredible. I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I don't think that March could have taken place when I was, you know, 15 years younger. Oh yeah, for sure. It, 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 it probably could have, but it would have probably been nothing but like upper middle-class predominantly white folks from mm-hmm. the East coast from in that lived in the DC area and, mm-hmm. and college educated folks. Like it wasn't our people, right. That would have probably made it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and I think it's, it's great that, um, you know, it's kind of tied into the language too. You know, I think, uh, so many young people can speak the language far more than I could when mm. I was their age. I, I'm in that generation that sort of didn't learn the language. Like, you know, my father knew and like the young ones do now. Do you mean like the, like, yeah, like Dakota language Dakota. or like mm-hmm. the language of so- of society? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I like this turn. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Like, there's much more. Like, man, like I'm from Lower Sioux, a little tiny community in southern Minnesota, and like, growing up, nobody talked about lacrosse. Like, I never. I remember we'd hear about it. We talk about, oh yeah, like in old photos. You see pictures of Dakota, you know, people playing lacrosse, right? But our past 10 years it's coming back because people like our age have like oh i want to know more about that i want to bring that back right 
Mm-hmm. Like they're, that's a, just a really prime example. I know that they're doing that in Sisseton, like bringing back lacrosse and other people are picking it up is a great example. And I think about this, this is actually a lesson I learned from my mom is my mom is um, in her sixties. You know, she grew up very much a part of the American Indian movement, civil rights movement, more than more the AIM movement when she was living in Minneapolis. She's Dakota. Um, she is definitely a result of historical trauma. My, she was a part of, she was in a, the foster care, you know, foster care system in Minnesota for a lot of years as a little kid and seen some really tragic and difficult things there and experienced it. And she was that generation where her mom, my grandma, they were all fluent Dakota speakers. My mom didn't learn anything because they didn't, they, they were like, they didn't, they didn't pass it on um, for, for a whole range of reasons. But my mom told, this is long, this is making more longer, but we were in sweat lodge once we were in a sweat ceremony. This was like, you know, 10 years ago. And it was just me and my family, just my mom, my, my brothers and sisters, and my, a couple of my older cousins. And my mom, we sang a bunch of songs and like my brother and I, we sang a new song we learned in ceremony and sweat. And my mom said, you know what? When I was 18 years old, I didn't know a single song, a single song. I didn't know a single Dakota song. She, Oh, she's like, I did know one. And that was a Dakota hymn, an Episcopal Dakota hymn. I knew that. But our traditional, traditional song, she's like, I didn't know any. And she was like, I remember you guys just want to say this. I remember when I was 22 years old, there was a bunch of us, uh, Dakotas and Lakotas in Minneapolis in sweat. And there was like, eight of us, eight of us all for living in the cities. We only knew collectively one prayer song in sweats. And we sang that song over and over for like an hour. And she was like, that's what like that. That was when we were trying to reconnect because our parents, the culture was beaten out of them. They were afraid to express it. She was like, and so when you think about all those aimsters, that's what we were going through. All those guys, all of, all the women, all of us, we were trying to reconnect and we had one or two songs. And you fast forward 30, 40 years, we have so many songs that folks are coming up with, so many different things. It just shows goes to show you the power that you could have in rebuilding our, our community. I think back to uh, in my growing up experience, um, all of... Uh, the sweat lodges um, were in the trees up in the back there. And I didn't realize back then that that was sort of um, because in the old days they would, they would hide those out of the sight of law enforcement. And it was, it was a very quiet thing that was done. And so mm-hmm. of course with, with um, I think just the, the expansion or the confidence in culture, uh, it's something that is not hidden anymore. And I don't know. It just it just gives me hope for the future. It it does. I, it really does. And I'm excited to play my small part in that. And um, I think maybe you know something I realized is we we have to. It took me a long time to really understand this. Is that we also have to allow our youth just to be, just to be youth, just yeah. just to be fucking young make stupid decisions sometimes as long as it's done 
It's not too stupid. It's not too <laughs> dangerous, but we have to allow our, our folks to grow. And sometimes we, the way we talk about things, the, the pressure that we put on the seventh generation, I think sometimes can be counterproductive because of that. Cause we, because we might, you know, we just might be creating more harm at times when we put that much pressure on generations. I think mm-hmm. we felt that in our our age because that's the the seventh generation was really hammered home for those of us in our thirties and forties, and mm-hmm. um, I think that we are being more caring for one another nowadays. We're being more uh, forgiving of each other, and I think that's where we need to be. If I, I, I mean, could... a, a great example of that. Sorry to cut you cut you off. No, no. Like one example of that is how we talk about alcohol like that. And this might be contentious for folks. I, I, I welcome that contention here. But when I was young growing up, alcohol, bad. Alcohol is bad. Like you do, like if you drink, it's bad. You are like fire and brimstone because our people are dying by it. And I still believe, I still believe like alcoholism is an issue that's present and that has caused a whole range of problems within our communities, but it's not necessarily alcohol that's causing it. it's a whole systemic range of issues as driven a lot of our folks to alcoholism and that disease um that is that it, that we're dealing with but i feel it's I, I don't drink i've never drank in my life I actually i've been sober my entire life but i also believe nowadays it's more acceptable for folks to socially drink in indian country Mm-hmm. Where folks our age have now kind of have dealt with the guilt and be like, okay, yes, some of our folks socially drink and they don't carry some of the burdens, the historical traumas uh, necess- necess- uh, that may have emerged in previous generations. Like it's still mm-hmm. there, but it manifests itself differently. And so that's what I'm talking about is like the empathy and the forgiveness that we need to exhibit for one another. I still advocate. I, I, I don't want to make, I want to make sure people don't get it twisted. I advocate for sober lifestyles. I advocate for us to find a path, a, a walk in life that we can be free. Our minds can be free of substance influences um, and primarily alcohol. But I also am very open-minded and empathetic to folks who can socially drink and, and, like that's a journey I had to take on personally. Like, because I grew up in a whole alcoholic home, I grew up impacted and traumatized by alcoholism in, in, in the home. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. We, um, we, we've had conversations kind of like in the, the art world among artist friends, you know, and, um, socially have drinks and, but they feel like they can't talk about it because of the stigma that's that's there and mm. it's 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 pretty tough it's pretty tough to for for those individuals to freely talk about those things yeah yeah like right it's like you're they have to sneak and it's kind of funny you tease them like <laughs> like they keep it under the radar you know but even even elders i was talking to an esteemed artist in our community and he he caught himself and i had to take it off uh, and maybe maybe i won't put this in the episode i don't know uh but he's like oh when i'm in town i'll buy you a beer and then he kind of caught himself he's like well i mean uh, we'll, we'll have a we'll have drinks or something i forget what he said <laughs> but it was funny listening to this 70 year old man sort of try to backtrack and it's like mm-hmm. you're, you don't have to do that you're yeah. you're 
you're an elder. You can say what yeah. you want, you know? And he's got his life together. It's not like he's, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so can, can you talk about what's, what's going on right now? Where, where can people find your work or connect with you online? Yeah. Well, my, the organizing work I do is via the indigenous environmental network and definitely you can go to uh, the acronym is I E N. You can check out IEN on all platforms and follow along the work that's doing there. I very much, you know, over the years, I've really had to check myself. This might be a whole tangent into itself, unto itself, but I really had to check what I would see is definitely kind of a savior complex where like this idea of like centering myself. And I really, over the past few years, have tried to be, trying to step back, you know, of, of centering myself in the narratives and taking up so much space. And I really um, need to recognize that in myself, but also just encourage folks to learn more about the work that I'm doing and not learn about what I am doing, but learn about what the fights that are happening right now, what they are doing. So you can check out IEN for that. Um, and in, in center, what do I mean by that is like centering myself in other, I felt like, I felt like I did that too much. I took up space. I mean, there's a toxic man thing where I took up space and spoke up on people's behalfs. And I, but I, sh- I have no problem speaking up on my behalf. And with that note, you can check out me on Dallas Goldtooth on my other social media pages where you can see the act, the art, um, the acting work that I'm doing, the writing work I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get better at like promoting myself in that regard of my own art, art, artwork. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just trying to work on that. Like, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is I've gotten very hypercritical about my own presence on social <laughs> media. And I've also become critical of just how people in general use social media and promote themselves and take up space. Because I think if nothing else, we've come to learn over the past four years is that social media is almost its own reality that is sometimes not in step with what's really what 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 is real in our day in our lived lives in the world around us outside of social media you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so yeah thank you so much for having me on this podcast i've always appreciated you and the work and 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 your father i've always appreciated his guidance and his words and uh so ble- i feel so blessed to have had you in my life thus this far and look forward to uh to our future interactions dallas thank you thank you dok shah ake koda washtero chicago and that does it for this episode of five plain questions i want to thank dallas again for his time and sharing his story with us i can't help but feel um I can't help but feel that Dallas is a touchstone in the generation of this generation of Native American uh, actors and performers, for sure. Um, when when we think of different generations and touchstones, you know, I think of Gary Farmer, I think of Graham Greene, I think of Wes Duty, uh, Irene Bedard, I think of Shashin Littlefeather, and I, I'm I won't go into any more names because I'm excluding very important, very substantial um, actors, uh, including those who in this generation, but Dallas's presence and efforts is is worth noting and uh, worth uh, 
giving time to listen to, I feel. And I, I just couldn't uh, be more grateful that he, he sat down and took time to be on this program for us. And I'm, I'm just grateful. You know, I, my dad had a lot of respect for him. He saw the power in Dallas and his ability to organize and to be kind and to be funny. Dallas is just a good, humorous, natured guy. But that's the 1491s, right? The 1491s are, they're on par with kids in the hall. They're, they're on par with these comedy troops that are legendary. Monty Python, I'm going to say it. Um, that's what the 1491s are. And the fact that they are now, uh, you know, moving into um, this space with Sterling Harjo and all that he's created. And the previous writers and, and um, producers that have been on this program associated with the show, uh, Lauren and uh, Chad. Okay, I'm gushing. I'm just so grateful that we have all these amazing people doing such great things right now. Um, I'm just, I'm in a good place, and I hope you are too. Uh, I wish uh, Dallas and the groups, uh, of course the 1491s, but Rutherford Falls and Reservation Dogs and all the other works that are not being mentioned right now who are out there killing it. I wish them all the best. So, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to go back to my script here and end this episode, but uh, this was great. And Dallas, thank you so much. And be sure to check out Rutherford Falls streaming right now on Peacock and Reservation Dogs coming out on August 3rd on FX. I also want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. Please join us next time as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Kana, that's C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists on Facebook, across social media, uh, especially Instagram, that's the name page, and at the PlainsArt.org website. There you can see our programming, past videos, and these podcasts. If you have a suggestion for me, to, for someone to talk to, let me know and reach out to me. I'd like to hear from you. All right, well, you take care, and we will see you next time. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.